Welcome to the Pope's Podcast. I'm Donovan Potts, multimedia producer for the College of Arts and Sciences. The next few days will bring two important milestones. First, it's been one month since the OSU community moved nearly all campus functions online due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, April 19th marks the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. While one of these events is still unfolding, both have left lasting impacts on our school, our state, and our society. Today, we're joined by the Department of Sociology's Dr. Liesl Ritchie and Dr. Dwayne Gill, who are partners in research and in marriage. Their work focuses on the sociological impacts of disasters and extreme events like earthquakes, hurricanes, and oil spills. We discuss how the current pandemic compares to other extreme events, whether people from a particular area are more helpful than others in times of crisis, and how we develop resilience for the next time something happens. What is the sociological definition of a disaster? What Are there certain events that have to occur or certain situations that have to occur before any event is defined as a disaster? Well, when we think about disasters, disasters uh, from a sociological perspective are only disasters in so much as they affect society and they affect people in them. So for example, if a tornado happened and there was no one around, uh, and there were no physical infrastructure that had been built, it wouldn't be considered a disaster. Same thing with a landslide or, or an earthquake or something like that. It has to actually affect people. Um, the other thing that comprises a disaster is when an event overwhelms the system, not unlike we're, we're seeing right now, and creates uh, what we would refer to as collective stress with the system uh, not being able to provide the things that society and groups are normally accustomed to having. I would add that there are various types of collective stress. When we think of collective stress, we can think of things such as war, revolution, uh, certainly disasters fall within uh, a form of collective stress, famine, and, and, and pandemics are another type of collective stress. So they're not exactly the same as disasters, but they fall under this broader umbrella of collective stress, things that, that affect the collectivity, uh, whether it's entire society or a community or some other type of social organization. Focusing on those things that you just mentioned, how then would this current situation, this pandemic, um, fall under the classification as a disaster? Well, I guess I wouldn't classify it technically as a disaster. It's, it's another form of collective stress. So it has a lot of similarities with disasters. I think one of the things that the pandemic is showing uh, similar to what a disaster would show would be various types of vulnerabilities which exist in society. So a tornado or a hurricane or some kind of natural hazard-based uh, uh, disaster would reveal different types of vulnerabilities which exist in communities. Perhaps it's uh, the built infrastructure, perhaps it's uh, lack of warning systems. So when you make a kind of comparison with a pandemic, again, this pandemic is revealing uh, different types of vulnerabilities that we have within a society and down at the community level. I, I think too, when we're talking about this in the context of disasters, maybe we would refer to this more as what we would say as an extreme event that has, as Duane said, characteristics of a disaster. So for example, the uncertainty that comes with a disaster whether it's a natural disaster or what we would call a human caused or technological disaster, we're experiencing the same kinds of uncertainty 
and some of the social responses to this event would be concurrent with what we would see in, in terms of disasters. So for example, this uncertainty, people trying to make sense of what's going on, people trying to understand uh, who they can trust and who uh, provides accurate information, uh, information that they can count on to make good decisions about what they're doing for themselves, maybe their families, maybe their friends and, and neighbors. And having that kind of uncertainty tends to foster this environment that again generates this collective stress that puts a lot of pressure on society and communities in particular. So focusing a little bit more on collective stress, what are the tangible ways that we see that play out? Um, are there any positive aspects to it? Or is it, do you see just strictly kind of the fear, the uncertainty, um, some of the kind of the panic things like, you know, going out and buying more than you may need or kind of a paranoia that we've seen in some things uh, recently? Or are there any good avenues that come out of uh, collective stress as well? Well, while a lot of the research focuses on the more adverse or negative components of collective stress, I think, you know, we're always able to see uh, the human spirit kind of uh, come, come through. So we're witnessing in our own neighborhood, uh, you know, we're keeping our social distance, but we're meeting our neighbors a lot, knowing a lot more about them than we might otherwise uh, if we went ahead living our normal lives. So uh, while there are a lot of adverse components to collective stress, uh, there are also uh, some positive things that come out of it. Uh, I, I think what, what makes it stressful is there's a lot more adverse things coming out of it than positive, but it's not just a total negative uh, effect. The other thing too that's accompanying this particular extreme event is the fact that it's so widespread. You know, some of the more um, major disasters that we've seen over the past couple of decades have had an impact on a specific location, a very specific geographic region or a state. So of course, Hurricane Katrina, talking about 9-11, uh, Superstorm Sandy, those kinds of things where outside help was really readily available. And we had an opportunity to come together as a nation and help these isolated areas. Whereas right now we're trying to, uh, of course, help the, the hardest hit, the hotspots, uh, but other communities are not necessarily uh, COVID-19 free. And so they're also having to attend to what's going on in their own locations, as well as trying to reach out to others that are experiencing this in a more acute way right now. Yeah, that's a good point that you made. It's such a broad scale thing. Like there's, it's in every community, it's everywhere, it's global, but it's also very much local. And how does that play into just the societal response to that? Because everyone is affected by it in some way or another. And it's just there. There's no way to go get away from it. Whereas I guess what you said with a, you know, with like a very localized disaster, it's like, well, it's just in this area and everyone else just kind of looks on. But in this one, we're all in it. Yeah, it's a lot harder to have a coordinated response when everybody is uh, being impacted in one, one way or another. Uh, that's not to ignore that there are some positive relationships. Uh, for example, I think the state of Oregon offered some ventilators to uh, New York 
So you're seeing some of, some of these kinds of more positive relationships and working collaborations uh, emerging in this type of, of situation. But again, it, it's really a lot more of the adverse or negative things going on. And these, these other instances are, are really probably more rare than, than we wish they were. One of the um, analogies that I heard, I can't remember, I'm sorry, who, who said it on, on the news, had to do with thinking about it in terms of, of a wildfire versus having a single tree on fire. You know, if there were a single tree on fire, folks could come together and easily put that fire out. But when you've got the whole forest on fire, it's much harder to get it under control and to coordinate, as Duane was saying, those efforts to do so. And I think the other thing, this kind of leads me to our next question. Obviously, you know, the geography of an event is important, but also the time frame. Of an event because you know you think with a tornado or a hurricane little longer term or a terrorist attack something like that it's a very quick thing like it happened and then it's over and then people can begin to respond to it but with something like this there is no there's no way of knowing right now when the end of it is so it's just going to kind of keep going and how does that add to the especially add to the adverse effects Right, so some of the empirical work that we've done on human cost or technological disasters, I think, come into addressing that, that question. When you don't have an endpoint in sight, and this is similar uh, to a lot of technological disasters, it's also something that we see in the case of drought, and you're not really sure when it's gonna be over. It tends to put a lot more mental stress on, on people and communities. You're asking uh, mental health providers to really come up with something which they may not be as uh, adeptly trained to deal with. It's not part of their day-to-day -day kind of relationships that they have with, with patients. You're talking about long-term chronic mental health issues that take a different type of response and, and clinical preparations. So I think that's one of the things that we note when, when we don't have a definite endpoint in sight is you've got this lingering uncertainty and it just adds to the to the mental uh, stress and it also affects social relationships as well and in terms of this time frame that you're talking about we think about this in terms of a disaster cycle where we have starting with a warning and then moving through subsequent phases, including the impact of the disaster, the response to the disaster in the immediate term, the recovery phase, and then the mitigation phase. And what we're seeing here play out all over the country is different communities, different states, hitting these different phases at different times. So we've got the hotspots that are having this warning and then this immediate response and hopefully soon moving into recovery, but then you're gonna have other communities and states lagging behind and so they'll be in the warning stages as they are right now and then responding and then moving into recovery. So this staggered impact is going to have these ripple effects as we're seeing not only socially, but, but economically as well, of course. Um, and, and I think that's something being stuck in these warning and response phases uh, are going to exacerbate the social impacts that we tend to see following technological disasters. Coming back to something you said, Duane, in there about the effect on interpersonal relationships with this right now, especially with, you know, social distancing and all of that. Um, how does that put an added strain on a society when I mean, we are we are all social beings? We all have some kind of connection with each other every day. 
uh, how does the lack of that put an added strain on a society, especially in a situation like this? Well, I'd like to clarify just a little bit. It's not always just a lack of it. It may be too much. <laughs> uh, now, Lisa and I are doing fine. We're, we get along just great. But it's good to have a backyard to go out to. It's good to have a little bit of distance or separation in our togetherness. And so you're, you're disrupting uh, normal social routines in, in this type of situation where we're going through the, the social isolation or the physical distancing. So you, you have uh, issues of maybe too much togetherness and haven't really figured out a routine to deal with that. And then you have the issue that you raise that we're used to interacting with other people and that has been uh, curtailed at least in terms of the face-to-face -face interaction. I think what we're seeing as a form of substitute is more use of technologies, like we're using Zoom now, but other types of technologies where people can interact virtually, to me, it's a step above talking on the telephone, to be able to see each other and, and read faces and body language and so forth. So I think some of that is being compensated through these different technological uh, applications. But certainly, I think in the long run, I mean, we love to go out and be part of a crowd. We love eating in restaurants where other people are, are, are there going to sporting events, theaters, other kinds of, of events where uh, we as a collectivity can gather and, and feel comfortable being with each other. I think it's gonna be a while before that, that kind of level of, of socialization or socializing comes back into play. Dwayne, you teach a class, right? You're teaching right now a class, mm -hmm. a master's levels class in sociology of disaster. And how have you been able to incorporate what is happening now into that course? Yeah, great question. Basically, we designed the course after spring break or during spring break, uh, knowing that we were going online for, for here on out. And a lot of what we were scheduled to talk about kind of fell in line with the topics I had prepared for us to look at. For example, the first week after spring break, we're looking at social media and disasters and how media can spread mythologies or counter mythologies. And so there was certainly a great deal of discussion about what's going on, not just in social media, but in the broader media, the kinds of uh, information that was being disseminated, some of it accurate, some of it questionable. So our students were able to really dig into uh, that kind of, uh, of event. Then we looked at how disasters impacts different groups, individuals, communities. So we were able to, again, take the pandemic and say, what's happening to individuals? How is it affecting families, communities, the larger society? This uh, most recent uh, class on Wednesday, we looked at emergency management. And uh, we were very fortunate that a couple of our students who are out of the College of Engineering are part of the incident command system here on campus. And they were telling about their experiences of setting up logistics for going out and getting test samples and bringing them back to the vet school lab for testing. And uh, how that 
emerged as various types of information came out uh, from the state and, and other officials. So really redesigned the class to focus on the, the pandemic, but sticking with a lot of the same topics that we were scheduled to cover, just focusing on, on the pandemic and various aspects of the pandemic that relate to those topics. We do Zoom, uh, so we have a really good participation and actually just my observation over the last three classes on Zoom, uh, maybe because I've given the students a bit more responsibility to report on different aspects of the pandemic, but I'm getting a lot more uh, class participation that is really focused on the topic. And I think, I would hope the students would agree with me that this is a much more enriching experience because we have an actual event to live through and study and, and take the knowledge that we're learning from, from the class and apply it to a real life situation. What are some of the effects that you're seeing you know, in the OSU community and in the Stillwater community that we're all a part of coming about because of the pandemic? I would say that what we're seeing here on campus and the actions that campus has taken, the actions that people have taken proactively in the city of Stillwater uh, are having a positive effect. You know, let's not get complacent. You're hearing that on television about the national context in which we're operating, but we can make a difference here in Stillwater and on campus and following the directives of the CDC and of the task force and focusing on the data, focusing on the empirical evidence and the experts to tell us what we need to be doing and how we need to be going about that is really, really critical at this point. Yeah, there's very little room for error, particularly in rural communities. Uh, rural communities don't have the same level, generally they don't have the same level of, of healthcare facilities, the same level of human capital and they really need to stay very vigilant and follow uh, the, these rules that are laid down by public health officials, CDC. The more that we can maintain this social isolation, the better off we'll be in terms of uh, combating this, this pandemic. I think the campus in particular is being particularly agile and flexible as we move forward, which is something that is really key to the resilience that we're looking for to have on campus among the faculty members and of course most importantly among the student body. What I'm seeing uh, with respect to my own colleagues is people in the faculty who are reaching out to one another, supporting one another in very important ways. Work is continuing on campus, whether it's teaching, whether it's uh, putting together research proposals, whether it's adapting ongoing research. We're seeing cooperation across uh, colleges and I think that's really important. I think that that can be highlighted. I think the other thing that's happening is that faculty members and instructors are reaching out to their students. They're having to work a lot harder and I think we need to appreciate that both from the student perspective and from the educator perspective. You know, it, it might seem that it would be easy to just transfer a course online and it's just a matter of taking what you were going to do in the classroom and putting it online somehow, and that's simply not the case. And making sure that we understand that, again, the ripple effects are, are going to go on beyond this semester. 
We don't know what's going to happen in the fall. I know of other schools already that are planning to be online in the fall as well. And I think that we need to make sure that we're providing the support at the campus level for the faculty members and the students as has been happening in the past several weeks. I know that our department head is taking a very proactive role in reaching out to us and communicating on at least a weekly basis and keeping us informed. And I think that that is uh, being followed uh, by example among the faculty members in, in the Department of Sociology at least. A lot of your work deals with um, the concept of social capital. And uh, can you define that for us too? Kind of give us an idea of what that is? Sure, so social capital is networks, trust, and association that come out of the kinds of relationships that Duane was just talking about. We can have them at a micro level, which would mean we would have them with our friends and our neighbors. And there's broader level, macro level social capital at the community level and between communities and in situations uh, where we have a lot of social capital, then we have typically a very high quality of life in a community and a lot of community well-being in terms of the way society operates in, in those particular communities. One of the things that, that Duane just mentioned, this, this sort of shifting of how we foster or, or generate that social capital is the move from this face-to-face -face and in-person kind of interaction to the online and other forms of uh, interacting. And we don't really know what kind of effect this is going to have ultimately on the way social capital works in communities. We have a colleague actually who is studying that uh, in the state of New York and looking at the differences in the way communities respond to this virus uh, with respect to whether social capital is diminished, whether social capital is actually helping move through this. And we've seen a lot of evidence, as Duane pointed out, with respect to people moving out online, but we're also seeing some evidence where people are volunteering, volunteering to go to the grocery store for other people, helping uh, to deliver uh, items that might be needed, people who are volunteering to hand out food at schools, and even people, for example, who are coming from Florida, I saw in the news this morning, healthcare providers who are going to the hot spots and putting themselves in harm's way, so they are extending themselves and extending social capital in that context. How does social capital work during an extreme event or a disaster, knowing that no two disasters or events are the same, but how does it kind of usually play out when something happens? There are a couple of different ways to look at this. When we think about what we would call typically a natural disaster, like a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake, what we see is people tending to come together and to be benevolent and to cooperate in ways that you might not normally see. So you see social capital actually at its finest, typically, in the face of these kinds of disasters. And one of the things that our research has found is that in the wake of a technological disaster, this isn't necessarily the case, that there are a lot of issues with trust, that there are a lot of issues with blame, and that's a large part as a result of the uncertainty associated with toxic contamination in communities. And so we see where social capital can actually be diminished and negatively affected in the face of a technological disaster relative to a natural disaster. And I think what we're seeing here is some interesting convergence of the way uh, people are responding to this disaster in the context of what we know about natural disasters and what we know about technological disasters. Some of the adverse impacts 
that I feel like I'm seeing out, for example, on Facebook is uh, people contesting other people's perceptions of what's going on. So, you know, this notion that it's a conspiracy, that it's some kind of a hoax relative to other people that are taking it very seriously and participating in social distancing. Those kinds of contested realities are playing out online and they can become quite bitter as I've seen over the past several weeks at this point. But you typically don't have a lot of uh, contested definitions of what's going on after a natural disaster. Human caused events uh, and, and pandemics such as this, you, you have a lot of uncertainty, you have different uh, perspectives, contesting what's going on. And this, again, just adds to some of the mental health and, and uh, social issues that, that, that come out of this. When I talk about social issues, I'm talking about some kind of adverse social behaviors increased uh, uh, drug and alcohol use, you may have increased evidence of domestic violence, uh, uh, other forms of, of negative social behavior. You mentioned earlier, Donovan, the, the notion of panic. And I think it's really important for us to consider when we're talking about this type of event or other disasters, one of the things that we know from research is this this notion that panic is actually one of the disaster myths. People are not necessarily panicking. They are actually taking information that they're getting, whether it's accurate as we might define it or not so accurate, and they're taking that information and they're processing it. So when we see people scurrying to the grocery stores and stocking up on food, for example, stocking up on toilet paper, you know, these are things that in their minds are actually very rational things to do. So they wouldn't consider it panicking so much as they would consider it being prepared for an event that's either going to happen or that's, that's ongoing. And so this idea that people are, are panicking isn't necessarily something that the research holds uh, out. Right, and the uncertainty really feeds into those kinds of behaviors which one you know, might define as a form of panic. Uh, but again, typically there's some very rational thinking, even though they may not have the best information, it's a very rational thinking that, that underlies these behaviors. It's not uh, just unthinking behaviors. Well, and two, again, if we think about another type of, of event, like a, a fire in a building, you know, some might describe people leaving that building in a hurry and screaming, that kind of thing as, as being in a panic, but it's actually a very logical thing to do to leave that building when there's a fire. We've all seen the, you know, the photos of empty shelves and long lines. And we spoke to, on our show, we talked to uh, Ed Leffingwell from the psychology department. And he said, you know, there's, there are some times where people don't actually behave rationally. And is that just something that comes from, like in your view, just from the idea of misinformation that causes people to kind of subsume their, their rational brain maybe for a little bit and go out and do things like that? Well, again, I think the uncertainty is driving a lot of this. So if, if you have a level of, insert, uh, of certainty, then you're going to look at other people's behaviors and say, oh, that's irrational. But if you're in a situation where there's a great deal of uncertainty, you're getting lots of different messages, you're seeing other people grabbing a toilet paper, I must be missing out on something, I better grab some too. 
there's lots of different explanations. I, I don't think it's just a, a form of panic. Another thing that we might be seeing is people feeling like they're having some control over some aspect of their lives. When they're going out to the grocery store and they're taking some action that makes them feel more comfortable about what's going on, let's face it, you know, when we're ordered to stay at home, essentially, that takes away a lot of our control. When we're faced with a pandemic like this that causes so much uncertainty, that makes us want to feel like we have some level of control over our lives and, and of those around us and helping the situation be better. So I think that's another element of this that provides a certain amount of rationale uh, for the way people may be responding. Going back to like the idea of social capital and the you know, willingness of people to help each other out in tough times. So I grew up in a rural area and the general perception is, is that people in the country, people from rural areas are more helpful to each other uh, when there is a disaster, when something bad happens, be it like a large scale thing, like a tornado, or even when it's something very small, like you know a loved one dies or something like that. Does research bear that out? Are people in rural areas more helpful than people in urban areas, or is it just a, just a, is it just one of those kind of, well, I wouldn't say urban legend, but something you know, the, the, a rural the, legend, a rural legend, exactly. I would tend to lean more on the rural legend uh, component. There, there's not a lot of hard empirical data that shows uh, one versus the other. I think. One thing to remember is uh, when we talk about urban areas, we really need to break it down into neighborhoods. You know, certainly a huge city, it's hard to see an entire city turning out like you would in a rural community. But if you get down to the neighborhood level, then I think you'll see similar types of relationships, similar types of helping and turnout, similar forms of social capital. Uh, it, it's much more evident in rural areas because you don't have uh, the noise of other neighborhoods in a larger city uh, kind of overshadowing the, the neighborhoods. But uh, I, I would say there's probably not a huge deal of difference between a lot of rural communities and urban neighborhoods. You can find uh, variations in both. This kind of moves into my next topic. How does something like that help develop resilience? And then first I'm going to say, what is resilience? And how do coming through hard events together or coming through good events together, how does that help build a culture's or resilience? Well, we would define resilience as the ability to anticipate, to absorb, and adapt to some kind of event, typically an extreme event. And when we're thinking about being resilient, we think about the kinds of resources and assets that exist in a community. So we've talked already a little bit about social capital. We can think about human capital. So for example, uh, the medical care that people are receiving uh, in the state of New York and elsewhere around the country right now, that relies on human capital, that knowledge and the skill set that the medical communities bring to bear on the pandemic. We think about things like the critical infrastructure, the built environment that we have. Uh, we talk about natural resources. We talk about cultural capital, those, those shared experiences. And we talk about things like financial capital as well. And all of those things come together to help build a community's resilience. And when we think about resilience, 
we have to think about it in terms of those collective resources and having those or not having those is really the way we can characterize whether a community is likely to be resilient or not. So it's not just a matter of, I think some people kind of maybe mischaracterize resilience. This is like, well, the more hard things you've been through, the more resilient you probably are. But there are a lot of other factors that go in, not just being through a lot of bad stuff. Right, we would hope you're resilient in spite of any bad stuff happening. It's really a way of having a very healthy community, one that has a great deal of high quality of life, good community well-being. If you have those things, then events that happen, you're more likely to be in a position to marshal these different types of capitals that Lisa was talking about in order to address the situation at hand. Certainly prior experience of adverse situations help, but that's not really the driving force behind resilience. It's a much more holistic view of a, of a healthy community. One example of learning how to be resilient would be down on the Gulf Coast, for example, when they were accustomed to having hurricanes and they know exactly what to do. You know, they know to board up their houses, they know to grab the animals and, and the family and, and evacuate typically. But when you think about Hurricane Katrina and the extremity of that event, there was only so much that communities could do, right? So we had a situation where they were used to hurricanes and they thought they knew what to do and they did that, but even that overwhelmed the system like we talked about earlier. And that's what made it a disaster in, in ways that we hadn't seen before. You're saying that resilience though, I mean, it's not foolproof. There are events that could still happen that could test and overwhelm a community's ability to adapt. But resilience is something that you can actually build. It is something that you can have in place before an event happens. Yeah, you can certainly do things to improve resilience uh, within a community. And again, so Lisa was talking about the various forms of community capitals. If you can figure out ways, uh, you know, I think part of developing resilience is recognizing vulnerabilities in your community and marshaling resources to address those vulnerabilities. I think every community has different types of vulnerabilities, whether it's vulnerable to natural hazards, whether it's vulnerable to economic downturns, whether it's you're vulnerable to pandemics. You can't anticipate everything that you might be vulnerable to. So again, just having a good, healthy, healthy community uh, in developing all these various types of capitals, I think is, is the key to resilience. How does resilience spread out and move among a group how do we how do we kind of give resilience to each other is it something that we can kind of collectively do and come along with and you know be more prepared well research shows that one of the ways that resilience can be built is through social capital through those shared networks and associations uh, and relationships and that's one of the key links to having a resilient community, but let's face it, not everyone in that community is necessarily going to have the same access to the different forms of capital. Not everyone's going to be in the social networks and associations where you have access to really good healthcare or you have financial resources that would help you be more resilient. 
So that's what we're seeing now with this pandemic in a lot of ways is we're seeing a weakness in the system, particularly with respect to healthcare, access to healthcare, and other vulnerabilities such as these pre-existing conditions that tend to be in groups and communities that don't have access to the kinds of resources that we're, we're talking about. So just the same way you're, you're talking about the potential for resilience to, to be able to spread, you know, among those of us, for example, the university employees who are in position to keep on working, what we see there is the potential for, for spreading of, of this resilience within that university community. But then there are other parts of the community that may not be in a position to spread that resilience. So I think it behooves us to think about where those, those populations are in our own communities and see if there are ways in which we could reach out to them and be of assistance in this, this really challenging time. I think another part of resilience is this notion of a safety net. So whether you're talking about at individual level, you have a safety net, you know, your family level, you've got some kind of safety net, a community, you know, what's the safety net? And I think what we're seeing with this pandemic is that the safety net has a lot of holes in it, or it's weak or frayed, and people are falling through the safety net. And a lot of it has to do with uh, existing inequalities in society, how this impacts various groups, gives them a disadvantage, gives others an advantage. And without getting into a lot of politics, there are, there are political issues that underlie how you address inequalities or whether you address them or not. Showing the weaknesses and things like that, it kind of leads me into um, my next question about resilience. Is it something that as a society, we can forget? Because this isn't the first time we've gone through, as a nation, we've gone through a pandemic. You know, the 1918 Spanish flu, everyone brings that up as the kind of the analogy to what we're going through right now, but there's no one left from when that happened. I mean, we just have the history books now to tell us basically what went on then. So is there an expiration date on resilience? I think resilience is a process. It's not something you purchase. It's not an object necessarily. We are, are human organism. You know, we have, uh, we're resilient uh, and we have to keep doing things to maintain that resilience. You know, we have to get good sleep. We have to have good meals. We have good health care, good mental health. So this is a constant process. It's not something that you pull off the shelf, lay down some money and, and take it home and have it. It's something you have to continually build, continually nurture, uh, look for areas where you can build up, look for areas that seem to be working well, and how can you replicate that. So when I, when I think of resilience, I think of it more as a process, a, a continuing process. So we, we might forget aspects of resilience, just like maybe we ignore aspects of our personal health, but it's there all the time. In the wake of a disaster or an extreme event, one of the challenges is that the system, the social structure in the system, tend to want to go back to the status quo. That we are perpetuating not only resilience, but we're perpetuating those vulnerabilities. And that's going to be a real challenge coming out of this pandemic. It's the challenge that we've seen in some of these large-scale disasters where the more well-off of the community members are easily able to or relatively easily able to um, be resilient and that passes along to their children and so on and so on 
But similarly, those vulnerabilities and the weaknesses in communities also get to be passed along. And that's a really unfortunate dynamic that, again, the status quo tends to perpetuate. And that status quo is, is really tough. The status quo is resilient and it doesn't like to shift. And I think those are the things that we need to keep in mind as we move forward through this pandemic and move out to the other side, whatever that other side looks like, and have our systems be recreated in ways that are more resilient and also take into account things that have worked. And unfortunately, there don't seem to be a whole lot of those right now, but perhaps in retrospect, we will be able to document some of the things that have worked better than others. And that's one of the things that we as social scientists are in the process of doing. There are hundreds of social scientists around the country and a number of public health uh, folks as well who are looking into things that are uh, going on in a, a social dimensions aspect of uh, this pandemic. And those are the kinds of things that as we go about documenting them, we'll be able to bring to bear on future events should they happen. Speaking about the, the emerging research that, that's coming on among social scientists, disaster scientists, the public health officials, Liesl is actually launching a research project in which she's examining how this pandemic is affecting the researchers themselves in terms of how they go about doing their research, and then what kind of uh, personal effect does it have on them? in terms of their day-to-day -day life, their perspective on the discipline, their perspective on life. Uh, sometimes when you study these events, it can have an emotionally draining effect on, on the researcher. And uh, even though they're doing really great work, it's taking a personal toll on them. So this is some of the things that Liesl's trying to do with, with the research that she's initiating. And the researchers themselves are certainly not immune to the effects that COVID-19 is having on the rest of the population. That's another unique aspect of doing research in, in this climate is that, you know, for example, researchers, if they have children, are trying to do interviews over Zoom or by telephone with kids in the background. Uh, we're also facing situations where certain kinds of research have come to a halt, particularly the community-based kind of research where we're out and interviewing people face-to-face -face on a more regular basis. A lot of people have shifted their research to online studies. We're gonna be seeing a lot of those here on campus at Oklahoma State University. And so these kinds of effects that the pandemic is having on researchers is something that I think is going to be very valuable for us to know uh, down the road and, and in the future. I'm glad you brought up the idea of um, how the research of disaster and extreme event, the role it kind of has, or the, sorry, the effect it has on the researchers, the people who go in after and have to, you know, cover, you know, talk to people, do whatever. And that kind of resonates with me because, you know, before this job, I was a videographer for a television station, multiple television stations, and we covered a lot of disaster. And it is very much a you know, it kind of adds to the stress that we're experiencing just from our own personal standpoint, as well as going out and documenting basically the stress of the society, the collective stress, as you said, and turning that around and presenting it to people. So just having 
all that together. I don't know if I've ever made that connection between what sociologists do and uh, social researchers. So yeah, that's, um, thank you for the role you're playing in this that will help us at some point down the road. It will, maybe not in our lifetime, but it will. Well, and this plays out over the coming months and even longer, you know, I've heard some estimates that this is going to play out over the next 18 months. And everyone refers to this new normal. That's a very common phrase in, in hazard and disaster research. And so it's something with which we're really familiar. And I think, again, those that haven't experienced any kind of disaster or an extreme event uh, have had to return to this new normal whatever that, that looks like. And I think uh, we have no clue what that is going to be uh, in the future. Our thanks to Liesl and Duane for joining us. And from everyone in the College of Arts and Sciences, we hope all of you are staying safe and well. For more on CAS's response to the pandemic, go to cas.okstate.edu slash COVID-19. And we talked a lot about people helping others in this episode. And if you have any stories about Cass Cowboys helping right now, email us at pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. And now we finish this episode with our usual question, how are the arts and sciences making the world a better place? I think in this case, arts and sciences provide students with valuable skills that are essential in dealing with this type of event. And the kinds of skills I'm talking about are critical thinking skills, the ability to look at data, understand the quality of that data, be able to interpret that data, be able to consider alternative interpretations, alternative perspectives, uh, and critically evaluate these to come up with better decisions, better understandings of what's going on in, in society, particularly under the conditions of this pandemic. I think those are the valuable skills that uh, particularly sociology and other departments in the College of Arts and Sciences uh, instill within our students. Mm -hmm.